Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of From Queer to Eternity. As many of our listeners will already know, this podcast kicked off during lockdown, where we've been chatting with a whole host of guest contributors from across the LGBTQ community. The response has been incredible, and it was even more incredible to be invited to participate at the London Podcast Festival back in September. So, we gathered together in front of an audience for our first In the Flesh recording with a very special guest, author, actor, screenwriter, director, and so much more. This episode features the one and only Mark Gatiss. Good evening, Mark. I think I've been trying to get you on this podcast since the start of the year when I You've just been trying to get me. Just been trying to get you with a rifle. Um, (laughs) I'm very pleased we've finally been able to get you. And this is our first From Queer to Eternity in the flesh. Everything else has been remote, and it's our first live one from the London Podcast Festival, which is very exciting. Well, no one's been out for two years. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very honoured. <laughs> it's very strange seeing this many faces. Yes, but yes, what have you been working on at the moment? Because you, you seem to be the busiest man alive. Well, I've had quiet time, like everyone else, <laughs> for a bit, but then it did. Uh, it's perked up a lot um, recently. So I've just, I've made a new ghost story for Christmas, which I shot in February. And I've just finished uh, a new version of The Amazing Mr. Blunden, which is one of my favorite uh, family films, uh, which is on also at Christmas. I'm owning Christmas. <laughs> uh, and I'm about to start rehearsals for A Christmas Carol. Also very Christmassy. Yeah, so I'm, that's it. That's the end of Christmas for me. Yes. <laughs> it, they, they weren't all supposed to be in the same year, but now they are. Yes. So it's going to be a very busy Christmas for me. Oh, yeah. where, when and where is A Christmas Carol? A Christmas Carol, Carol is my adaptation. I'm finally playing Jacob Marley, my dream part. It's at Nottingham Playhouse and then Ali Pali. Ah. Uh, in the in, um, amazing theatre at Ali Pali, which was... Uh, it's like a fairy tale. Uh, it was... But built in the 1860s, I think, and there was a fire. They kind of just closed it, and then someone sort of pulled some panelling back and went, oh, my God. <laughs> and there's this, it's just fantastic. It's semi-ruined, and they've, they've restored it into a semi-ruined state. So it's essentially doing Christmas Carol in a ruined Victorian theatre. It's basically all my boxes ticked. <laughs> <laughs> the lovely thing about Christmas Carol, not just Christmassy, a bit spooky, so good for the entire autumn season. Yeah. Oh, yes, Halloween, really. no, yes. We start in Nottingham at Halloween, weirdly, because the panto can't be moved. So it's an early, <laughs> Christ- it's an early Christmas treat, but it is, I'm emphasizing the ghost story elements uh, more than usual. So it sort of starts in Halloween, you know, but Christmas lasts all year round anyway, so it doesn't mm. matter. <laughs> um, I also have another question I always begin the podcast with. What does the word queer mean to you? And how do you personally sort of identify yourself within that bracket i don't know it's, it's an interesting thing because i grew up um i was interested listening to sam barnett's uh earlier and um sam was talking about about it as a, as a pejorative term and i didn't grow up with it in that way at all it was an old-fashioned word i mean what people always said was puffed puff really where I was, i'm from and great big puff your big puff fucking puff fucking puffed things like that but queer was not a it was an old word. It's sort of it's actually a word from sort of Sherlock Holmes, really. And it, what it meant was like other or mysterious in a rather lovely way. I always remember years ago seeing a um, fantastic documentary about Edward and Mrs. Simpson. And Oberon, no, was it, was it Oberon War or something? There was this fantastic old guy on who'd, who'd know, his father had known them. And I think he'd met them. He was incredibly old. And uh, he sat there in being interviewed with one of those blinks. And he said, my parents didn't approve of him or her. They were the sort of people that they would say were, were rather fast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
and and queer is a bit like that for me. Mm. That term. So I I I really like the way it's been reclaimed. But to me, it hasn't been reclaimed from being something that was slung at me in the schoolyard. It's a different term. But I would certainly say I would I would say I'm a gay man. That's what I grew up saying, and uh, and that's that's I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But I I just feel it's a it's a it's a great it's a great word to. To, to cover all kinds of bases, isn't it? And I mean, that's that's what I feel really is that I don't really like people being plopped into boxes. It's quite nice to have a term that sort of covers everything mm. because you know that that fluidity is something we all used to used to dream about. Really, that you wouldn't actually have to say I'm this, that, and the other, or even you know stick hard and fast to that. You know, R- Russell T. Davis wrote a, a beautiful series called Bob and Rose about a gay guy who loses all his friends because he falls in love with a woman it's a really interesting story to tell isn't mm. it but i always that wonderful expression um love is where it falls i think is is the truth for all of us you know and if you if you spent your entire life very solidly identifying as a as a as a, as a gay man and then met someone of of the opposite gender and fell in love. I mean, th- why not? I mean, that's not it. There aren't rules like that. There shouldn't be. I remember years ago. It's a long time ago. Everything is. Uh, a friend of mine was very active in the in what was then called the the queer sort of movement. There were lo- I've still got it somewhere in the attic a, a book of posters from Soho uh, that someone collected, and it was it was the it was the queer as fuck. I had a queer as fuck T shirt in 1991. All these things, and it was a it was a big movement. It was a the first sort of attempt to kind of go, yeah, we're not going to be bound by anything. We're not going. There's no there's no boundaries anymore. We're gonna. This is different, and we're all queer. We're going to do this, and and he he organised this queer night, and his male queer friend and his female queer friend were like really getting on, and then on the dance floor, and then they start having sex on the dance floor. He's going, yeah, this is so fucking queer. This is oh no, they just oh they're just having sex, aren't they? <laughs> I remember him saying, he just thought, I just thought, oh, oh yeah, they're just people, aren't they? You know, so that's what it means to me. <laughs> it's quite difficult to segue from that <laughs> to your childhood. Mm. Um, <laughs> no, it was exactly the same. <laughs> but set the scene a little bit. Where, where did you grow up? What sort of background did you enjoy as a, a child? What was your Enjoy. <laughs> I, I was born in the northeast of England, uh, in Sedgefield, uh, Tony Blair's or constituency, or eventual constituency, in a place called Hardwick Hall, uh, which was, is now a, it's a, it's a stately home, but it was a, a maternity hospital. And I'd, I'd never been back until a few years ago. We were driving past it on the way to the seaside, and I said to my dad, Oh, can we go? I've never been. Uh, so it's beautiful now. They've they've restored it and landscaped it. And I went to the reception of the hotel. I said, "Can I can I have a wee? I was born here." <laughs> <laughs> so I did. Um, and uh, I was yeah. So I was born in uh, there, and then we we lived in a little mining village called Trimden and uh, Fishburn. Another one amazing titled Fishburn, where the air smelled of coke. I remember that very well. Not that kind of coke. And then we moved to a little place called School A Cliff, where I was brought up, where my dad was uh, chief engineer at the mental hospital across the road. And that's where I lived till I was uh, 19, I think. Yeah, And then I went to college uh, in Yorkshire. And in terms of your childhood, can you clearly remember when you first found yourself attracted to men or were you attracted Tonight. to men and <laughs> Tonight. I've, I've not been out for two years as i say it's been um oh very much uh i can list them all uh my first crush was Stuart damon in the champions he's just died god bless him what a beautiful man i remember having strange stirrings when i must have been four and I remember just having all kinds of funny feelings like you mm. do, you know, strange kind of crushes and indefinable feelings. Uh, definitely uh, Jack in Jack and the Beanstalk Ladybird book made me go funny. Uh, <laughs> what was that weird thing about, car- about cartoons? I sometimes worry about my, my husband, Ian, worries about my, my crushes on cartoon characters. <laughs> but they're kind of perfect, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, lots, lots of little things like that. And then, of course, you got your thrills from the back of the Brian Mills catalogue. 
That's that's <laughs> the only place you could get them in those days. I remember turning to the underwear section of the Brian Mills catalogue, and, and that was you know that was high art and porn <laughs> back in the day. So glad it wasn't just me. The Argos <laughs> catalogue in my day. Yes. Just, the gym Castle, whatever happened to the catalogue? Oh, eh? it's all online now. <laughs> um, so at what point did you... You said these sort of indefinable feelings, but at what point did you start having that label and realising you were gay and it was something, for want of a better term, something other? I suppose, like a lot of things, you, um, I think it's very often very strong in early childhood. Then it slightly goes into abeyance. I, you just sort of get on with being a kid, don't you? I, re- I mean, I can remember so many things from early childhood. Those like very strong crushes on men and, and sort of curious, conflicting feelings. And then there's a sort of gap in my memory where I think I was just, you know, going to school. I mean, I definitely had crushes on boys at school and stuff like that, but it wasn't a thing. And then it becomes, it comes into focus really with adolescence, doesn't it, I think? Or I was about probably about 10 or 11. And then I was... I was aware that it was uh, that it was something you could be, mm. but obviously, as as many people have said, you know, there weren't many positive role models. In fact, no role role models. And it's an interesting thing. This my, I was talking to a friend of mine a few years ago about. I'd just seen this documentary about Larry Grayson, and you know, for those of us who grow up, he, he's a very funny man. Former drag queen, then became present big on New Faces, then presented the Generation Game. It's a really funny comic. And him and John Inman in, in I Being Served as Mr. Humphreys and stuff like that. And I've watched this documentary and Larry Grayson just came across so well. He was such a nice man and genuinely hysterical, I think, you know, all that. Not wash my hair in weeks and all that stuff and look in the muck in here. And, um, and my friend who is in his 70s said, you see, I can only think of him as the enemy. And that's because from his standpoint, you know, working at the, f- the forefront of the gay rights movement in the early 70s, Larry Grayson was the enemy. He was that camp stereotype on the telly, which we all grew up with, mm. we all knew. And, it, and, and I was very struck by that because it's, it is that sort of generational shift. But I don't remember feeling embarrassed about people like Mr. Humphreys or Melvin Hayes in It Ain't Half Hot Mum or something like that. It was just a, it was a ton of sort of trope of, of TV comedy, but um, I didn't feel ashamed. I think, oh, that's like I'm, I'm like that. I just remember thinking, you know, there was something in it, <laughs> and then it kind of. I remember it snapping very much into focus. I, I never told this to anyone. Never even said this to Ian. I'm going to say it tonight. I can, I was reading to Bauhaus. Do you remember Bauhaus? The the lead singer of Bauhaus, Pete Murphy, beautiful man, another one, great taste. I've got. And <laughs> and I remember, I remember writing in a sort of secret, not a diary, but just somewhere secret. I want to fuck Pete Murphy. <laughs> remember that? I can see it now. I've forgotten all about it. And it was I sort of like folded it up and put it somewhere, like a message to myself. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> but um, it was uh. I, yeah, I suppose it's around then, isn't it, when, when all those confused feelings start to... And you, then you get that also that you're on that sort of roller coaster, that exciting ride of early adolescence and going to parties and going to school friends' parties and, and, and things start to vaguely happen, you know, or not sometimes. I was going to say, did you at any point feel during adolescence when presumably schoolmates were coupling up and things like that, did you feel comfortable being open about your own feelings or did you feel you had to feign straight for want of a better term or how open were you at this point i don't remember i mean certainly um certainly sort of you know the fifth year of school or something like that it just wasn't a thing and then what happens i, I stayed on into the, the the sixth form and then it became slightly cool i remember <laughs> i remember suddenly it transitions doesn't it you know the cooler kids have stayed on everyone else has left and I remember I, I made a, a sign for my locker in the sixth form, which was you know, like the, whatever the, the male symbol is, the circle with the arrow. And what I should have done was sort of turned it upside down and made the arrow like a, like a feminine symbol. What I actually did was make it droop. So I, I, <laughs> it's a terrible sign of things to come. <laughs> um, 
But I remember it was like, yeah, I, I remember. Th- I remember slightly enjoying the idea that people were going, "Oh, I think he," you know. And and when I finally sort of talked to someone about it, they all absolutely assumed I was living this amazing rackety sort of. Do, uh, Mr. Hyde like life, which mm. I wish had been true. I think it'd be further from the truth. But I remember sort of enjoying the kind of cachet of that, which I think is a very, you know, that's what you do when you're 15, isn't it? And I suppose in a way it sort of still happens today, but on Instagram, which is just like, yeah, look at my nails, you know? <laughs> <laughs> at that point, I'm guessing there weren't really many resources available for you to read up about sort of gay life or anything like that. As you say, you'll flick into the back of catalogues. Can you remember the first time you spoke to someone about being gay or anything like that? I think you, you said there was a sitcom that... You oh, yeah, found. yeah, 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 yes. Well, well, there was a great sitcom called Agony with Maureen Lipman, uh, which is co-written by Anna Rayburn and the Agony Ant. And uh, it was on Sunday nights, the most depressing night of the week. And <laughs> But it was that... Um, that strange ITV slot, quite late, like 10, 10 o'clock or 10.30 after That's Life. And it's a really good show. And so Maureen Lynn was married to Simon Williams in it, and she had two gay friends, one of whom was played by Dennis from Please Sir. No one understands anything I'm saying. <laughs> Might as well be talking in Latin. Uh, and amazingly, at Anna Rayburn's insistence, in their flat, there was a poster for, for Gay Switchboard, because she thought some some people might be watching this who want to ring that. And I did, I rang it, aged about, I guess, about 11 or 12, something mm. like that. And I, I think I, I, I let it ring and then hung up. <laughs> I can't remember. I was just, but I did do it because I wanted to sort of talk to mm. someone about it. B- because as you say, there, were, there was no one, there's nowhere really to do it. But it wasn't like, I don't, I don't, I had a very happy childhood. I've got nothing to complain about. And I didn't feel sort of oppressed or persecuted. I suppose it was just sort of maybe slightly embryonic. Mm. There wasn't any facility for doing anything about it. So I mean, what I really wanted to do was escape. And that's the truth. And I think that's what most people do. You, d- you don't actually have to dislike your upbringing or your home to want to do something different and that was always true of me i've um me you know my brother lives a mile from where we were brought up and he, he came to london went back and a lot of people do that but i've just it's never been my thing and i just i suppose in my head i always had some sort of version of of a different kind of life which was definitely a, a gay one and but i didn't really have any kind of context for it mm. um i remember slightly nip, nipping ahead there was a there was a boy in the upper six i had a massive crush on and i started going to darlington art center now gone once the second largest art center in the country that's a separate podcast um <laughs> and i was just at, like on a friday night i was just there with, in youth theater or something and and i started talking to him and i knew he had a boyfriend it was scandalously exciting and uh we were just having a drink and he said what are you doing later and I went, I've got to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and I know now what he was asking. We had nowhere to go, but he was definitely, you know, it was going to happen. But I had to go home to my mum and dad. And I remember thinking, fucking hell, this is just, this is just so unfair. Why don't I have, why aren't I independently wealthy with a flat? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, you know, I, th- I often think, when you hear people who've had these amazing stories, I had a friend years ago who was in the Sea Scouts, and I think he had more sex than anyone who's ever lived <laughs> from from the way he described it. It was just, some people seem to have those amazingly easy rites of passage, you know. It's like, oh yeah, my best friend, my best friend took me into a bush and said, uh, what's yours like? And then, then we sort of went out with each other three years. And I just go, what? That's just so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that happened to me. No. And, and going back a little bit from that, phoning the, the sort of switchboard at that point, and actually talking to someone and, and saying the words, I'm gay, did that, being able to say that, actually, you know, vocalise that, change how you saw yourself? Did it give you a sort of freedom in a sense? Or? I don't know. You know I mean, it's, it sounds weird, but you, you do, I sort of forget an awful lot of those, the, the links in a way. Mm. I, I, all I would say is I, I never really struggled with it. I think I struggled for an afternoon. 
And I can vividly remember being on holiday and sitting in the sea when I was th about 13. In fact, I was 13. First time we went abroad to Salou in Spain. And I remember sitting in the shallows and there was a there was a German there was a German boy I saw every day. It was like Death in Venice, except that <laughs> we were both Tadzio. Um, he was so gorgeous, and like everything I felt I wasn't. I mean, I was so pale and skinny and English. And he was, just, you know, in that way that German exchange students. I'm sure this is still the case, but they'd come to school and they like their skin was like honey. They all look. They're all so well. We were all so <laughs> so unwell. And, painfully ill and northeastern it's like and i remember anyway i remember sitting in the sea looking at him playing like volleyball or something on the beach and thinking oh god i think i'm a, i am a gay aren't i and, and it but it wasn't really i just thought oh well i honestly i didn't mm. really struggle in that way I, I i remember being sort of worrying dreading having to tell my parents or but not struggling in that way which i'm very grateful for because i think a lot of to this day obviously people really become filled with self-loathing and, and worry, uh, worry themselves to death and have suicidal thoughts about all kinds of not being able to accept it. I never had a trouble, any trouble with that. I just thought, well, this is me, as Mike Yarwood used to say. <laughs> no one understands anything. Why is everyone, <laughs> everyone so young? I can't bear it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you accepted yourself very early on, didn't have an issue with it, but you were apprehensive perhaps about your parents. Mm. and telling them yes did you have a plan for coming out or or how did you actually first sort of engage with people about that i didn't have a plan and then it just sort of happened accidentally which is which was initially sort of ideal just i was visiting home and my my mum just one evening just said you seem to have a lot of girls as friends but you never have a girlfriend although i did have a girlfriend we'll come back to that um are you not interested in girls? She just said it, and I went, no, I'm gay. That was that. And it was, oh, incredible relief. And then I said, oh, I'm going to have to tell Dan. She went, no, I'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't. Mm. And then a, 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 about a week later, I was back wherever I was living, I can't remember. Um, and I was on the phone to my mom, and she said, hey, uh, your Uncle Jack came around Sunday, we had snow. I told you, Dad. Um, <laughs> and she told my dad. And again, of course, I was hugely relieved. I thought I don't mm. have to do it. And then I realized I did have to do it because what had happened was they had been told and now it had been put in a drawer and locked away. So about a year later, I sort of had to do it properly, mm. which was actually harder than just sort of doing it, you know, because it became a bit more of a thing. And... Uh, my sister came out in a rash. Um, she really did. Like she had a physical response. I mean, she was brilliant, really, about it, but it, she, she really had a physical response. My brother, of course, went, I always, I always bloody knew. <laughs> that was the end of that. Um, but it was okay. And, and it's a weird thing, you know, talking about how, thing, how, we, how we progress and how things become, like, unimaginably different to how they used to be. When my nephew is gay... I always knew he was gay. I'd sort of forgotten. He was gay from birth. And I'd sort of forgot. It was so obvious. I'd just never thought about it. <laughs> and, then, and then about 10 years ago, his dad rang me and said, um, oh, Andrew's left a note on the stairs saying uh, he's gay. He's worried about I was going to throw him out. And, and the, 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 everyone's response was so completely wonderful and ordinary. I, we have a joke in here that uh, I, I almost employed an actress to play a hitherto unknown aunt who could take it badly, just to give him something <laughs> to kick against, you know. <laughs> but it, yeah, it was absolutely, it was easy as pie. And, and I thought, God, that's, that, that's just, it's wonderful to think that can just happen like that. And it mm. really is so different. And, but yet, of course, you mustn't think that that means everything's fine. And, you know, it's very easy, I think, to imagine that because of um, technology and because of changing social attitudes that everything is rosy. But what actually happens is you just swap it for a different set of problems. Mm. So, yes, I mean, there's a couple, there were a couple of boys I was at school with, I had huge crushes on who turned out to be gay, if only I'd known, and maybe, you know, if we'd had apps in those days, it might have been different or whatever. But 
it, you can't just imagine that every every kid now is is, is easy because n- not everyone's like like London or Manchester or Glasgow, or whatever. You know, and there's lots of tiny places still where it's just as hard as it ever was. I think, mm. and it's really easy to forget that until you actually leave London <laughs> and go, oh yeah, this is just like the 14th century, isn't it? Right? So. <laughs> Interesting. Um, no, no, not everywhere. But I mean, you go to, you can literally go to towns and villages and think, this has not changed mm. a bit. You know, strong rural farming communities and stuff like that. It's, I'm sure it's every bit as hard as it used to be. And there's a massive pressure to be butch and to be masculine. And, you know, where I'm from, it's, in the Northeast is, you know, notoriously hard drinking and, and, and rough. And a lot of it still is. And I, and I just, you know, there's lots, there's lots of, there's lots of monthly gay nights and things, but um, I'm sure it's still pretty tough. Mm. And when you came out to your family, what, what sort of age were you then? It's next month I'm doing it. <laughs> I, this is all a, like a When fan, this podcast like goes out. It's just... um, I think I was, let me, I'm trying to work this out from the, where I was living. I think I was 19 or 20. So you'd left home at that point? Yes. And I had a girlfriend for two years, smokescreen. <laughs> and... Um, so yeah, it was about, I was about 19 or 20, I think. I'm just curious whether coming out, were you in a relationship with a man at that point? Or do you think you delayed telling them because there was just nothing to tell? You had these feelings, but you weren't acting on them. So therefore... No, I wasn't in a relationship. Um, did I? No, I, I, I was just frightened. You mm. know, I mean, it's like anything... I'm sure these things still hold true for everybody. Or uh, I remember the terror of, of the prospect of leaving home. Although I desperately wanted to do it, I couldn't quite visualize doing it. And then it happened really quickly. And it's like pulling off a sticking plaster, you know. It was just, that was that. And I suppose it was a bit like that, you know, with, with coming out, was um, you, you just kind of got, I just got on with it. Uh, and I didn't have any news, unfortunately. I wish I had that. It's, it's, I can understand where people say, I'll do it when I've got someone to introduce mm. them to. And, and it, it's so much of it is still about, is about, um, reassurance, isn't it? You know, again, you, you can just easily imagine that everything's dandy and everyone's parents are going to be fine. And then you read about, you know, kids who are still chucked out all the time mm. or, or one parent or the other takes it very badly or or there's often religion involved. Often religion, I think, uh, is a real block to that sort of thing. And I, everyone's experience is totally different, I think. Hello, I'm Tom, and I make a podcast where I log in to celebrities' Amazon accounts. It's called... What a brilliant idea for a pod. There's no original pods out there anymore, but this genuinely is. Oh, thanks, Ben Bailey-Smith. Anyway, it's called... This is good, isn't it? It's clever, this podcast. You should do more. Thanks, Kerry Godleyman. It's called... This is such a great idea, by the way. What a great podcast. Shappy Corsander, you're too kind. The podcast is but called... It's biographical. You can get all sorts of information out of people. This is a very good idea. Thank you, Nick Helm. It's called My Mate Bought a Toaster. I'm going to listen to this podcast. Thanks, Alex Horn. Can you tell your friends? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Was there ever a fear in your own mind, or maybe not fear, but a doubt that, I mean, you had these feelings, but having not been able to act on them, did you ever think, oh my God, I might meet a guy and then go, this isn't for me? I'm intrigued you keep mentioning a girlfriend. What, how did that sort of come about? Well, we met 
at a party and uh, uh no well it actually was part of <laughs> it was part of that sort of pose i suppose uh when i was in sixth form there was a girl who's kind of good very good friend of mine and she was going out with this boy that i absolutely adored and uh, um sort of out of the blue she's it just we just sort of it just sort of happened and in that way you know when you're like 16 or something you know you just you just go for it don't you and it it became this thing it was it was totally i didn't expect it at all what happened was what eventually happened was i was in darlington arts center which i keep talking about and this it was christmas and this party of students came piling through you know with like dd boppers and and uh from a party and this boy just ran up to me and kissed me on the mouth it was amazing and and when we and we saw each other for a bit and when we finally had sex because we did have sex um he he said he i said this is my first time and he wouldn't believe it and it was not because i was an absolutely incredible lover <laughs> But literally, I thought about nothing else for so many years. Mm. I was quite kind of calm about it, you know, and quite—I knew what to do. And and I remember thinking, I was really going, "No, honestly, this is really special. This is my first time." He's going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," because I'd thought of nothing but, you know, for years. I'd sort of planned it in my head, like you do. Brian Mills catalogue, picture of Stuart Damon, <laughs> you know, sellotaped on, um, <laughs> and. Uh, but that, yeah, that was a big thing. But the the, the actual, the you know, talking about these things, these parties, and, and that sort of adolescent yearning. This boy that I that, that my eventual girlfriend was going out with, we were we all we got quite close as a sort of trio. It was like cabaret, and <laughs> we were at this party. I mean, well, I was about sixteen or seventeen, and you know, we're all a bit gothy, and. Everyone was drinking Thunderbird and, and all this terrible stuff going on. It was like, it was really late. It was about, you know, like 11 or something. <laughs> Waiting for people's parents to come home. We were like, it was so decadent. It felt so decadent. And I, walk, I remember walking home and it was, you know, I mean, these things are such cliches. I actually felt I was walking on air. I was, mm. I've never, I've never been so high. It was incredible. Feelings like, so I've broken my duck. It's happened. And it's him, you know. And he was just, actually, really straight and just, you know, playing with people as people do. But um, it was incredible. Never quite got over it, as you can probably tell. <laughs> Where is he now? We'll, we'll put the feelers out. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think I read somewhere that this girlfriend gave you a book, Edmund White's A Boy's mm. Own Story. Yeah, so, I, so what, as I say, what happened was, uh, in a way, my, my appeal lay in the fact that I was gay. And so I, I sort of unexpectedly started going out and and then she and she bought me as a birthday present Edmund White's um, A Boy's Own Story, sort of sealing the deal, <laughs> <somehow>. <laughs> which is a fantastic book. And I was hopelessly in love with the boy on the cover again. It's just what I do. I just fall in love with illustrations. <laughs> uh, it's a great book. Still, it's it's all about the hopelessness of early gay adolescence and, and yearning, you know. And, uh, it's really still a remarkable book, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I gonna you know, it's. I suppose in a funny kind of way, thinking about where we are now, where we've come to, it was a, it was quite, it was quite a sort of fluid relationship. Mm. In that there wasn't a sort of judgment about it, and I guess you, you do kind of feel at that age certainly that nothing is. Fixed, and I don't mean that that, that it's a decision because I don't think it is. But the, but you're, you're discovering all kinds of things, you know, and odd things happen that you 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 you're drawn to people, you you fall for people, regardless of their sex, because of their personality and because how you feel. And that, but you're also you're building yourself, aren't you? I think at that stage, I always think that's that's what you do, and I and I do find it a little sad when people feel completely hidebound uh, at, at some stage it's like it's sort of like the glue sets and it's like well that's what I am now mm. and, and we all know you know there are so many so many straight men who uh, who suddenly become widowers and, and then decide that that's not what they wanted or, or you know and that that's true of all all sorts of strata I think of society people have 
they they can they can be fluid. They can just sort of find themselves somewhere else. It was like you said at the beginning, Bob and Rose. Why yeah, 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 label yeah. yourself and and discount yeah. something that might that take off? That happened to me. I've never told anyone this. I'm going to tell everyone tonight. I may be drinking later. Um, <laughs> I I I uh, started seeing a woman in my mid twenties, absolutely out of nowhere, and. It, the the thing we were worried about was I was worried about how my friends would take it because I was gay, and it was a it, the, the politics of it were very odd, and and I remember that one of the reasons I was so struck by Russell's series I thought this has kind of happened to me it just happened and it was really nice it was only a few months but it was fun and it was very um, it was totally unexpected but also kind of well why not you know and i but i was worried about how my gay friends would feel about that because i had i definitely had a flag on my hat saying i am a puff so the apprehension of I coming did out have straight it's very embarrassing <laughs> yes yes coming out but no not straight no as 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 just not being absolutely 100% mm. and uh you know i mean i was a trailblazer because now <laughs> Because, but, but honestly, that's what, mm. really that. I suppose that's what people really are fighting for now: is to say, "Well, I don't know, and maybe tomorrow I'll feel differently." Or if if this person walks into the room, why not? I mean, just live and let live. I, I do worry. There's there's an awful lot of policing of of people's lives going on still, and and it's it's really just another version of telling people what to do and think, which mm. is is it cuts to the heart of of everything we try and champion which is freedom and individuality is like you know it wasn't it's no none of your fucking business that's what I, that's what i'm calling my podcast <laughs> <laughs> you'll be here next year doing it so you you escaped the northeast and made it down to london did you embrace the gay scene did you go looking for it how did you embark on dating and meeting people oh well it was this was the late 30s <laughs> so i was drafted and then no um so it's early 90s uh well very much oh my god yes i mean i had a i was a, what they would probably now call a young fogey i spent far too much of my early 20s wearing three-piece suits like jacob reese fucking mog and and wondering why nobody wanted to sleep with me and um and then i just sort of i just gave in i thought no this is ridiculous i'm i'm young i'm should i should be doing something about it which is the only advice i ever give to anyone get it while you can <laughs> and um and and i really embraced that uh, sort of old compton street lifestyle and all that uh it was great fun and and it was a, it was a thing it was, it was a there was a there was something in the air old compton street and soho had suddenly become very very gay even gayer and I remember um, I was living in Bristol 1991 and before I moved to London and my friend's sister was going out with his cycle courier and he had a flat on Old Compton Street directly opposite Compton's and I remember coming to stay for the weekend in London and and it was a hot summer evening and throwing open the window and just looking out onto Old Compton Street and just going <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of throbbing with possibility, you wondered know. where that sentence was going. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and that, you know, and yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was, it was really, it was fun. And uh, you know, I, I went out a lot. I didn't. I've never really been much into clubbing and stuff like that. I did go a bit, but it was just, it was that sort of nighttime life and the sort of, sort of living for that. I suppose really. Mm. I was a lot more excited than it was. <laughs> and in terms of the nineties. Uh, there was still presumably the shadow of the AIDS crisis and all of that. How did that affect you as a gay man living during that period? Never any sex. No. <laughs> I was very careful, actually. I mean, I grew up absolutely uh, in the shadow of it, uh, of of Section 28 and AIDS. And I remember being very careful and being very aware of it and you know it's funny now i was very i, I was texting russell about this when it's a sin was on and and i th i remember now it's funny sort of just didn't quite click a couple of times a couple of guys d 
didn't want to go all the way. And, and I, I know now it was because they had HIV. And, the, and, it, and I didn't really crack it at the time. I didn't know what, that why they were so, there was, a sort of, there was a sort of slightly angry resistance to things. And that's what it was. But I mean, I, I was lucky enough, I, I didn't know anyone who had it, who died of it. I knew several people who had HIV. Uh, but it was, very, it was very much the specter then, you know. And, and I grew, absolutely grew up in a, in, a, in a safe sex environment, which is now, I think it's absolutely incredible that a whole generation can grow up without that fear and, and, and having prep uh, just available to them. But it's just, you know, I find it, I can't get past that mm. myself. I'm just too old. And it's like, um, that's absolutely ingrained. It was the way of not dying. And uh, it's an amazing thing to think that we've got through that and people are living full and long lives when it was a total death sentence. I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was like, it was like a plague. It was like what you would, the worst thing you can imagine. Mm. You know, the thing that was the most fun was, was not only, wasn't just about being frowned on, it was deadly. That way, I mean, yeah, that cools your ardour somewhat. <laughs> I suppose as well, with limited resources, when you've got government campaigns telling you that it will kill and, and you know, things are drummed into you, it's very different from being able to discover for yourself. Yeah. That's your own sort of exposure to it. It sort of leads me on to other things as well. I suppose gay marriage obviously came later and, and the ability to adopt. But when you were growing up, I suppose, knowing you're a gay man, you wouldn't have the, had the option to get married or have children. Was that something, looking back, you would have wanted or, or imagined yourself with? Or? No, I was very, I was really very keen to have a, a, a proper boyfriend but I, I, I never had any anticipation of marriage or certainly not children don't like children no I do I love children not as much as dogs though um, <laughs> I never wanted children and it wasn't I didn't have that sort of feeling or anticipation of it you know but also I guess I have a lot of a lot of theories or a lot of thoughts about which I find very interesting about what what qualifies as otherness and and that there is a there's a loss for a gain in the sense of when i was certainly when i was growing up there was a particular feeling about what it meant to be gay was not about being what you would probably now call heteronormative that it was because we were not like that and we didn't want 2.4 children and a mortgage that there was something exciting about that and I think that still holds true, you know, for all the amazing and one obviously wonderful gains. There is still a part of, of, of the psyche which, which is drawn to a slightly darker place. That's, what, that's, that's my personal feeling. I think it accounts for a lot of the hedonism of the gay scene, is that actually you, you, you make incredible gains about equality and, uh, and uh, marriage and children. But but if you remember, I mean, I, I, all I can say is really very basically. When I first moved here, um, I went to this incredible party. It was incredible as far as I was going to say. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. It was like it's like the black and white ball, you know, Truman Capote in my head, and and there was all these amazing gay people there. It was everything I wanted. And I fell into conversation with this very elderly old queen. You know, in that way, it was like sort of a, he was like the Duchess. He was installed at the back <laughs> and he had a chiffon scarf. And he was really skinny and like an eagle. <laughs> and he was, sort of, everyone, everyone was sort of brought into his presence and he'd kind of look at them and demolish them. And, and, uh, and then we, he was, we got him very well and he, he talked, he said, he started talking about 1967 and decriminalization. And I, I think I was in the middle of saying, you know, obviously it's, incredible how far we've come and he just cut me off he said it was never the same dear it's never the same and i've never forgotten that because for him an incredible part of it was that it was illegal mm. he'd had a great war and <laughs> and he, he missed an awful lot of that and i do you know it's a to me 
it's a it's like all interesting things it's a complicated issue it's shades of gray there's a lot of interesting things going on you can both absolutely celebrate the joy of gay marriage and adoption and also think that you you trade something in uh that is naughty hmm. and and other and fun and and not like everybody else and i think that's that remains very true you mentioned uh the decriminalization of homosexuality in 1967 there a few years ago for the 50th anniversary of that you curated a season for the bbc called queers which is a nice series of eight monologues um which is currently back on iplayer Correct. for anyone who wants to watch it for a whole year um a brilliant brilliant series i think you bought a pub for it didn't you yes <laughs> that sounds very ambitious not quite uh, we found um i wanted to set it all in a pub that would be like the salisbury which is one of the oldest gay pubs in london not gay anymore and wanted a very lovely sort of old edwardian uh, so so we built the set and the, the the cheapest way to do it was to find one and we found the bar of the connaught hotel was was literally on ebay because they they'd refitted it and someone literally had the whole thing it was like we'll just buy the pub so we bought i mean it's basically the the woodwork that's what we did it was a lovely moment i thought god these this if this wood could talk um <laughs> and my plan originally so it's it starts in 1917 and goes through to 2016 and it's the the pub through the ages and my original plan was the last one the alan cumming one the best man speech it would actually have been turned into flats uh, but we couldn't. We had to shoot them out of order, so we couldn't do it. But I, I sort of wanted to tell the story of the venue as well as the people, you know. Um, but it was a wonderful uh, experience. Matthew Baldwin's here, who wrote the nineteen sixty-seven one, the wonderful uh, "I Miss the Wall," which is exactly what we were talking about. It was a it was a gorgeous experience, and and trying to chart that story uh, from the First World War and the connection to Oscar Wilde right through to to someone, you know, their own marriage. Uh, it was it was very it was a very moving thing actually. How did the project come about? Well, were you approached to uh, I was approached in a dark yes. corner? <laughs> I thought, well, this is like the old days. No, uh, yes, I was. Uh, it was. They originally wanted to call it coming out stories, and I, I didn't want to do that. I thought it genuinely sounded so old hat, and I and I just I leapt. I just thought, oh, I get I, this is ex- I know exactly what I'd love to do. A huge fan of Alan Bennett, and I love monologues as a form. And I thought there's a there's a there's a missing story here, I think, and and also a chance to give a lot of people who haven't written for TV before uh, a way in in those increasingly rare slots, you know, for drama. And it was a it was a joyous thing, really interesting, and it uncovered all kinds of odd corners of of the gay experience, for want of a better term, you know, that I, want, I, I wanted to do something about kind of post-Windrush and the black gay experience. And in my naivety, I thought, oh, there must be hundreds of books about this. There's nothing at all. There's nothing. Uh, it's, a, it's a missing chapter, mostly because no one's written any of it down. Mm. And the, eventually, I... I found a poet called Keith Jarrett, who, and the story was inspired by the sort of fringes of the Bloomsbury group, and they often had black models, and there's a lot, there's something going on there. There's a sort of queer demi-monde, but it's not written down. It's gone. And anyone, everyone who knew it is, is long dead, and there are fascinating gaps. That's just one example. But across the whole spectrum, I think you can easily believe that all our stories are told. Mm. And then what happens is, you know, someone turns a, the, the leaf of a book and something else falls out and some letter falls out revealing stuff. And I, that's, I find that very exciting because it doesn't feel like it's over, you know, and that everything is documented or, or finished. No, well, it, it was interesting when Queers went out, there were some people going, well, it's only telling the stories of gay men. For the most part, you've got Rebecca Front. But it was, it, they sort of said it's too focused on gay men. And similarly with It's a Sin, people said, well, it's only telling the gay male side of this history. And in a way, you go, actually, no, it just means we need more dramas. Mm-hmm. You know, no one drama or series should be expected to... Queers was specifically commissioned 
for the anniversary. So mm. I, I had to explain that all the, every every time. It was like this is this is mostly meant to be about that moment and everything that surrounds it. So, but you're absolutely right, and that's why, you know, it's really exciting to think there can be a multiplicity of of slots and form uh, to to address those things. Because yes, it's it's uh, it's absent. I remember talking to a friend of mine who's an artist artistic director of a, of a big theatre, and I said. There are so few lesbian plays that, that you know, you revive Sister George or where, where are they? And he just he said, you know, you're absolutely right. There's, I mean, nothing's happened since, but there mm. are there aren't there just aren't very many stories like that, and and they tend to be revivals of sort of plays like the Children's Hour, which have a vaguely sort of sapphic theme and stuff like that. And it feels like there's um, there's still an awful lot of work to do to commission those sort of stories, I think. And in terms of the cast you got, I mean, it was a brilliant cast across the eight episodes. You mentioned people like Alan Cumming, but also Ben Wishaw, Rebecca Front, Russell Tovey. I think you said quite a few said yes without even reading scripts. Yeah, they did, yeah. Do you yeah. think, again, there's that personal connection that because there's a lack of commissions out there reflecting those lives that people, when something comes up, feel, actually, I must do this? I hope so. Yes, I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of trust, which is lovely, obviously, but also... And it was an exciting project, but yes, I think so. And it's not necessarily even about the, the actor being gay themselves. Mm. It's, it's about telling those stories or interesting stories, I guess. And uh, you know, certainly Ben said yes straight away, sight unseen, and Russell as well. And it was, you know, these are there's a kind of urgency to that, I think. Mm. And I think that the success of It's a Sin proves that. You know, it, it, it's. Um, it could easily have been ignored. You never know. Mm. But it had a slight, sort of seismic impact, I think, in, in the way that if you'd spent ages trying to teach a new generation about the AIDS crisis, it would never somehow have got through. That series just did it, mm. which is just brilliant. And, you know, so worth celebrating. Also terribly sad. I found it... I, found it, I, I was talking to someone at the time, and I said, you know, the, the weird thing is it's so nostalgic. <laughs> And it was desperately sad, but it was really well designed. And those parties and th those squats and things, like, oh, I thought I the other one like that was the film Pride. The production design on that film is absolutely brilliant. And they, they didn't, it was the 80s, but not the 80s of like, you know, Bananarama. It was, it was like the 80s of crass and anarcho-syndicalist squats where I used to live. Leads and things like that, and all the, there was a, there's a particular character in that who works at Gaze the Word. He had these black plimsolls and a little beanie hat. And I thought, Oh, I loved you, whoever you were, all of you. <laughs> so, oh, god, it was just bang on. I love it when that happens because often in production design, if something is set in the 70s, it looks like the 70s on the King's Road, mm. as opposed to the 70s where I grew up, which was like 1951. <laughs> you know, all the furniture was 30 years old and stuff like that. But that. I love it when that they get it right. Like Another sort of gay production you were involved in. I love the term gay production. <laughs> so fun. Um, in 2016, you did uh, Boys in the Band at the Park Theatre. Again, one of those gay plays you just see sort of recur. But how was that experience? How did that project come about? And do you find there's a different energy when you're doing a gay play with a mostly gay cast? Well, I think we were the straightest cast weirdly who'd ever done it uh which is odd it was it was great i mean it, it, i saw the film when i was a teenager and like everybody it was desperately unfashionable at the time i loved it because it was so wrong um and it was great fun but it was also about self-loathing and, and you know everything you're trying to get away from and interestingly when we um when we finished the play someone sent me uh, a They'd fa it was just incredible coincidence. They were chucking stuff out of their attic and they'd cut out an advert for a play they were in from Time Out in about 1993 or something like that. And on the back of it was a review of the, pre of the last revival of The Boys in the Band in the West End. And the last line which says, I don't think this play has found its time maybe 20 years. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, we, so we, 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 we hit the right time to do it 
but it was still it's still controversial because it's you know it was the first real gay play but it's all about self-loathing and, mm. and people wanted very quickly to distance themselves from that kind of thing but what we found apart from the sheer joy and camaraderie and fun of doing it and also it's very funny the film is William Freakin, it's actually very bleak. The play is funny. And we had, we had a great time doing it. And also talking to incredible people who'd seen the original. And it changed their lives in 1970 when it opened in the West End. Absolutely changed their lives. And, and everyone's different experience. One, one particular evening, I met this elderly guy, ex-headmaster. He'd never come out till his wife died. Very sober man still clearly very buttoned up. But the play had meant a lot to him in 1970, but he was really quite unhappy still. And and then ne- and then that same evening, I met this guy who was in his 80s. His partner he'd been with for 65 years had just died. They met in the Korean War. And he said, you know, people used to say it was really difficult. We just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> and just completely different experiences in mm. one audience. And I remember the thing I liked the best was we toured it a bit and we were in Leeds. And uh, we did a Q&A afterwards, and this guy said, he said, I, 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 I heard about this, and I thought, why on earth do they want to revive that awful old fossil? That's why I came. And he said, I can only say it's absolutely as relevant as it ever was. And then there was a boy in the front who was about 20, and he said, well, it's just like my Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. And basically, you, you replaced booze for drugs. And... It's not everyone's experience, of course, but you know, it. People are people, and and some of that stuff, and some unfortunately, some of that self-loathing doesn't go away. But my absolute favourite on that on the last night, this really beautiful boy, I've got great taste, uh, <laughs> who's sitting t- next to another one, and he was tentatively putting his hand up, and I thought oh, he's going to ask a really awkward question, and then he he changed his mind, and at the end, the guy, the moderator, was wrapping up, and I said, I think that gentleman there wants to ask a question, and he went. Uh, yeah, I just want to say, I'd never heard of this play, and I saw it advertised on Grindr, and, <laughs> and, um, which is where I met this guy, and I just want to say we've had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> because the last question is always awkward, and it was, it was brilliant, so let's stop there, quick. I love to think that's how most of this audience has found <laughs> out about this tonight. Um, looking back then, just to wrap up, when do you think you became comfortable with your gay identity oh very early yeah and and i've been, but i've been lucky i guess you know in terms of not, acceptance is the wrong word because that always presupposes that you're being judged just you know with lovely friends and and family and not having a very rough experience and coming out and stuff like that but i think for me it's difficult to feel being aware of trying to be some kind of role model without actually telling people what to think or do. My, I, I always say this, so forgive me if I've heard it before, but I always think there, there is a great comparison to be made to be fighting in a war. If that doesn't sound too hyperbolic, you what what you fight a war for is for the right is the right for people to be indifferent because actually what you're fighting for is freedom. So sometimes it can be terribly disappointing when people don't... I saw this thing a few months ago, a, a debate, and there were two young gay guys on, and they started talking about decriminalization, and you could see on their faces a slight embarrassment, and then one of them said, I, d- I didn't know it was ever illegal. And you kind of despair, don't you? Mm. Because you think, doesn't, you, know, you don't have to be a history major to find these things out. But, but as I say, what you... What, what you what you fight for is for freedom. And if people want to not know, it's, it's their right to do it, you know. So all you can really do is try, as something like It's a Sin does, is, is, is tell people how it was, it, hopefully in an entertaining and f- informative way without lecturing them, and hope that they take some of that with them, you know. Because that, that's the other great thing about being alive, is, is that you realise it's going to happen to everyone, and that one day the Instagram generation will be going, oh, well, they've got it so easy. Now it's beamed direct. Now that sex is beamed directly into their eyes. Mm. <laughs> it'll be, it's, you know, it was like that in my day. No. Well, on that note, Mark. <laughs> That's what I'm working on next. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for entertaining us tonight and sharing your story. Thank you very much.
Enormous thanks to Mark for finding the time to come and join me in his incredibly busy schedule, and for everyone in our audience who made their way down to come and listen to us live. Don't forget, the amazing Mr. Blunden will be on Sky One this Christmas, and if you fancy something a little spookier, Mark will be appearing in his own adaptation of A Christmas Carol at the Nottingham Playhouse between the 29th of October and the 20th of November. Then at the Alexandra Palace Theatre between the 26th of November and the 9th of January. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll hear more from us very soon. What are we going to do now? I have no idea what happens now. Love football? Can't wait for the season to hit its stride? Salivate over Super Sunday? Well, this podcast is probably not for you. If, however, you're tired of the hype, but part of you still loves the game, you could try the famous sloping pitch from Great Big Owl. With Chris England, Nick Hancock and guests. The famous sloping pitch. It's a podcast about football, not market traders. 